A warm welcome to the Herty School. Herty School. The Herty School. The Herty School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. Understand today, shape tomorrow. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Herty School in Berlin. Good, good evening, everyone. Um, I think we're going to um, start the evening. Um, my name is Boshak Chalil. I'm a professor of international law at the Herty School of Governance, and I direct the Center for Fundamental Rights here. So on behalf of our center, it's really a great pleasure to welcome you all here, but in particular, uh, uh, those of our colleagues who joined uh, with us today from the Physicians uh, for Human Rights and also Bente Scheller, who's going to um, be chairing our panel uh, in, a, in a short while. The Center for Fundamental Rights at the Herty School uh, opened its doors uh, this September, uh, September 2019. Uh, a core mission of the center is to be a hub for debates uh, in relation to current and future challenges to fundamental rights, alongside being a beacon of impactful scholarly research on current and fundamental rights. We do not pick our rights. Uh, the Center for Fundamental Rights does not have a particular specialization on civil or political or economic or social rights. We also do not particularly pick a certain region in our focus. We have a very um, holistic uh, outlook as to um, current and fundamental challenges. So it is in this context that I'm very, very pleased that we are holding this event today, which focuses on uh, gross and systematic human rights violations in Syria. And we're focusing on this issue uh, against the background of a particularly meticulously prepared uh, research uh, report that uh, relies on uh, a very uh, important qualitative methodology uh, and a lot of work of a lot of people who have gathered some very important evidence and testimonials. Um, as you know, the, 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 the name of the report is telling, uh, the, the title of the report we will be launching and discussing with you in the broader context of the Syrian conflict is called My only crime was that I was a doctor. How the Syrian government targets health workers for arrest, detention, and torture. Uh, this is one aspect in the Syrian conflict that hasn't received a lot of systematic attention. There has been uh, you know, reports here and there, but this report really brings together a very important piece of the puzzle in relation to gross uh, human rights violations alongside violations of international uh, laws of armed conflict. Um, so really thanks uh, to our colleagues from the Physicians for Human Rights uh, to be joining us here today and giving us, all of us, the opportunity to talk about the report, about the broader context and questions um, surrounding accountability for these violations. Let me... Um, introduce uh, our chair. Uh, we have a, a, a big and important full panel today. Uh, I won't do the introductions of the panelists. Our chair will do them uh, later on uh, for you. But let me invite um, Bente on stage today. She's the head of Middle East and North Africa division at the Henrik Böll Foundation. Uh, she's our panel chair. Uh, and also she will give us a little bit more of a background in order to frame the broader context of the report for you, uh, and then uh, we will uh, come back on the stage with our panelists. Thank you, Bente, for uh, chairing and uh, introducing us the background for today. Thank you very much for welcoming me and for hosting us. Uh, thank you, everybody, for coming here for this very important topic. 
it is a topic that will be explained by others. My name is Bente Scheller. I'm head of the Middle East Division of Heinrich Böll Foundation. And Heinrich Böll Foundation is a German political foundation close to the German Green Party. We partly work as a think tank. We partly support projects. And Syria has been a topic we've been following for many years. We've been very committed on it. And both in the area as well as in Germany, we're supporting lawyers, artists, writers, analysts. So for us as a foundation, it is a very important topic. Therefore, I feel particularly honored that I was invited for this event that is shared with Heritage School and the Center of Fundamental Rights and uh, organized by Physicians for Human Rights or PHR. I feel particularly honored to be invited to it. I first have some technical remarks to make. Uh, the first is, even though the topic is one with which we could really spend a lot of time, we are a bit limited in terms of time, so I will need to ask everybody to be brief. Uh, we have a few announcements regarding um, the timing, so at a quarter to eight, we're planning to finish, but if you could not manage to have your questions answered until then, please join us for a reception in the cafeteria. Before that, first we'll go through the round at the panel, and then at roughly 7.15, we're planning to open it to you, so you can directly address questions that were not yet answered by the panelists. We don't only have you here in the room following, but there is also live streaming via Facebook. So if you still have people who couldn't make it here tonight, feel free to share it with them. As when it comes to your phones, please keep them silent. But as I would like you to share the live stream, I'd also encourage you, if you like this event, if you think that it's relevant, please feel free to tweet. As long as we do not hear your phones, we're absolutely fine with you using them. One of the panelists actually will be speaking through an interpreter. The others will do their uh, conversation in English. And yes, that's pretty much all the technical remarks I had to make. Um, if you are not familiar with Physicians for Human Rights, I think it would be absolutely worth checking out their first report on attacks on medical facilities in Syria as well. It is an amazing research that shows the systematic targeting of health facilities. Tonight, the evening is more dedicated to other forms in which medical staff is being prosecuted, harassed, arrested, and tortured in Syria. But I think really you should check out their website. Physicians for Human Rights investigates and documents human rights violations and also gives a voice to survivors and witnesses, thereby planting seeds for reconciliation and by ensuring that perpetrators can be held accountable for their crimes. PHR believes that medical ethics are intrinsic to the protection of human rights and they use their core disciplines, which is science, medicine, forensics, and public health to inform research and investigations and to strengthen the skills of frontline human rights defenders. PHR works closely with hundreds of partners around the world using facts to wage effective advocacy and campaigning and provide critical scientific evidence so that survivors can seek justice, which I think is absolutely crucial. We don't know where efforts to seek justice will lead in the end, but I think the sheer opportunity and to empower and enable people to seek justice are already worth something. And therefore, I highly appreciate the work being done by PHR. Specifically on the work on Syria, they will brief you when it comes to really presenting the report, and therefore I'd also now like to um, come to that. One announcement 
that is for tomorrow. I'd also like to make now, if you have not seen the film For Sama yet, it is an award-winning documentary shot in the last hospital of Eastern Aleppo. I think it is a very tough documentary. It's very moving and it's very important, showing the efforts that were happening there to provide healthcare to civilians, to citizens. And I think you shouldn't miss it. It will be in the cinema tomorrow at 5, no, at 7.30 at Filmtheater Friedrichshain. So please keep in mind, Physicians for Human Rights uh, brings you tonight the report, but tomorrow also Go to see the film and invite your friends over for it. For now, as for invitations, I would very much like uh, Rayan to come up. Rayan Kotesh is a researcher for the Middle East and North, North Africa with Physicians for Human Rights. He works in documenting, analyzing, and exposing health-related violations of human rights and humanitarian law in the Middle East and North Africa, particularly focusing on Syria and Yemen. Ryan, if you would please come to the panel. And it will be a shared presentation of the report with Michelle Heisler. She's a board member of Physicians for Human Rights, and she is a professor of internal medicine and health behavior, as well as health education at the University of Michigan. Please come here and present the report for us. Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. And uh, thank you very much for the uh, Center for Fundamental Rights for hosting this very important event. Now, uh, I'm going to try to be as brief as possible here. Uh, PHR has been documenting... Uh, attacks on health facilities in Syria since the very beginning of the conflict. So effectively, we started documenting these attacks in 2012, looking back into 2011. And we've used a single methodology that has remained unchanged uh, for the entirety of the conflict. And we've so far documented 588 incidents, so 588 attacks on hospitals, on clinics, on medical points, throughout Syria uh, on nearly actually 350 medical facilities that include uh, these, uh, these types of facilities. And the main conclusion that we've drawn, that we were able to draw uh, from our analysis of single incidents and patterns of attack was that these were not specifically indiscriminate attacks, that these effectively in some instances may have been indiscriminate, but in many other instances were very much deliberate. Uh, and seeing the pattern as a whole, seeing the entirety of these attacks, where they were perpetrated, how they were perpetrated, the timeline, their correlation with the incidence of violence, with individual military campaigns, led us to believe that they're part of a policy that has been rolled out by the Syrian government primarily who in our assessment has been responsible for over 90% of attacks on medical facilities, to basically put as much pressure on civilians residing in opposition-controlled areas, lead them to either capitulate or to be forcibly displaced. Now, in our analysis of these attacks on health facilities, we also came across a lot of information on the targeting of health professionals. And we have direct links with many colleagues who are here now with us today in the room, who work directly on Syria, who provide medical care in Syria. 
uh, who, since the beginning of the conflict, since basically 2011, uh, have held a belief that doctors, nurses, paramedics, pharmacists who provide care to perceived members of the opposition or to civilians in opposition-held areas are detained, they're tortured, they're practically disappeared, specifically because of their engagement in these acts. And in the summer of 2019, we decided to put together, put together a research project with the aim of testing this theory. So we interviewed 21 formerly detained healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, volunteers in the health sector who weren't professionally involved or trained, but became involved in the provision of medical care because of the circumstances. And we assessed the circumstances around their arrest. We assessed their interrogation by Syrian security forces, their torture, and the vast majority of them were systematically tortured by Syrian government forces. We assessed their processing through uh, judicial channels, so practically their prosecution, uh, and the conditions around their release. And the conclusion we came to was that these individuals were effectively arbitrarily detained and ill-treated and tortured because of that involvement, because of the act of providing healthcare in line with their medical ethics. Uh, now, these two issues, the attacks on health facilities and the targeting of individual healthcare providers in our assessment are part of the same policy. And as I said, it is a policy devised and sharpened by the Syrian government throughout the conflict with an extremely damaging impact on civilians. Now, all of the information that we gathered basically uh, brought us to this conclusion that the Syrian government has criminalized the provision of health in Syria. Uh, and much, much of the evidence that we gathered from how these individuals were arrested to how the issue of their involvement in the provision of care came up over and over again during their interrogation, how during the torture sessions, uh, which they endured many of, the issue of confessing to the act of providing care came up over and over again, and how these were charges, basically the provision of health care in a variety of ways, came up as a charge, as an accusation in court, uh, primarily in counter-terrorism court, uh, by the Syrian uh, government authorities. So uh, this is all to say that this is, I mean, of course I encourage you to read the report and much of the detail uh, is, is available in these individual chapters and in the stories and experiences of, of those we interviewed and their harrowing experiences. Uh, in our opinion, and in the opinion of many in this room, these acts uh, should not uh, go unaccounted for. These are issues that continue to impact thousands of families, potentially hundreds of thousands of individuals in Syria. We took a very narrow approach to the broader issue of detention, looking specifically at the targeting of healthcare workers, and they are uh, a fraction of those impacted by this uh, 
extremely vicious campaign uh, that goes on to this day and that impacts uh, anyone the Syrian government perceives to be working against its interests. Uh, with that, I think I will hand over to my colleague, Dr. Michelle, who can actually tell us more about the details of how the investigation was conducted. Good evening. So as, uh, as my colleague Ryan said, um, we were able to reach out to clinicians through our networks, uh, our partnerships with humanitarian and other organizations throughout the region. Uh, I was one of the uh, clinician uh, interviewers uh, in the interviews. As a physician myself, I have tried to imagine being arrested and brutally tortured for fulfilling my duties to provide medical care. I see a number of people are students here. You're working to develop the ethics, the professional ethics of your fields. And I, 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 I do often, since then, I think about, would I have the courage, the moral courage, to fulfill the oaths that I also have pledged to? And I think it's worth continuing to think about that for all of us as we, as we think about how we ourselves would face what these health workers faced. Um, these health workers daily chose to provide desperately needed health care, medicines, medical supplies. Um, one woman described being arrested as she was bringing antibiotics um, to a neighborhood in which many families had children with overwhelming infections. A surgeon described having to conduct a clandestine surgery to operate on an injured demonstrator who had a bullet lodged right next to his spinal cord. He was very worried during this operation about the life of his patient, but he was also worried that he himself would be detained and tortured for conducting this surgery. The patient survived. The patient re retained full mobility. But indeed, the surgeon was detained, brutally tortured, and detained for, in this, this case, a couple of years. So another person um, talked about... Um, and I'm trying to think of some of the just individual stories to tell you. Um, there were so many of the, of the individual stories. Uh, many described, first, often, the first act that many of them did was to try to provide medical care to injured demonstrators, the peaceful demonstrations um, at the very beginning. They then moved on to having to save people from the rubble of bombs, repairing torn limbs, helping multiple trauma uh, victims, many doing skills that they hadn't been trained in, pediatricians providing surgery, pharmacists having to do everything. Uh, as one um, pharmacist said, in, in, in all the tasks as the healthcare system collapsed in many of these places, he said, I was a pharmacist, a nurse, a doctor, a receptionist, everything. Another doctor found that a patient with a thigh injury that he had been treating um, was suspected uh, of being a terrorist. Um, and he was then arrested for providing that care. And his quote was the title of our report. Uh, my only crime was that I was a doctor. In another case, a nurse was working in the emergency ward of his hospital. Um, and he, was, he had been just taking care of someone, a routine patient. Um, and then as he was uh, changing that patient's dressing, as he, and I'll, I'll quote from him, he said, I felt a tap on my shoulder. I said, one moment. 
As soon as those words came out of my mouth, I was pulled back by the shoulder, my arms were twisted behind my back, and I was slammed against a wall. I was handcuffed, blindfolded, and quickly loaded into a vehicle. The vehicle was full and very noisy. There were many people yelling, asking where they were being taken. Later, months, months later when he was released, he found out that his whole medical team, the entire medical staff, had been arrested that day. Um, All those interviewed, I I want to just say that all of those interviewed, they spent hours sharing their very painful stories with us. Um, And I I will say that as one of the clinicians um, doing these interviews, I was awed by the remarkable resilience that the health workers showed. Even after experiencing inhumane detention and torture, pretty much almost every single one of the health workers that we interviewed, after their release, many went on and worked in field hospitals. Many of those who then had to flee Syria have found some way to continue to maintain their commitment to medical care and humanitarian work. Um, Many of the clinicians are not able to provide direct medical care, um, but all of them, a pediatrician is is helping lead public health campaigns in southern Turkey for vaccination. Others are working with the uh, Syrian former detainees. Uh, One of the psychiatrists that we interviewed stated, as, as we were talking, you know, what have you done since then? How have you gone on? And he said, I hit the bottom after detention. Now I am granted new life, so I must do more and live differently. Um, I often repeat myself, and I'll conclude with this. I I often, to myself, repeat the words of one of the health workers that we interviewed in in describing how he had worked to come to terms. How did he come to terms with these experiences of being so brutally tortured and and treated so inhumanely for and interrogated and accused of himself being a terrorist for providing medical care to all, which he had pledged to do? And he said, after I was detained from detention, he said, "I, I did have a lot of hopelessness and guilt, but working with former detainees has transformed my bitterness to energy. The suffering inflicted on these health workers like thousands of others detained, arbitrarily detained, tortured. And I will say, the people we interviewed constantly said we were the lucky ones. I know they would list names of friends who had died under torture, friends who were still disappeared. Their families had no idea where they are. Um, So I want to salute today as we talk more and more about the situation, the moral courage and persistence in carrying out medical and humanitarian work. And I know some of the people that have done this work are here in the room today, so we salute you. Thank you very much. That was a very quite a tough introduction to the tough subject you have been dealing with. I've seen so many familiar faces of people interested in Syria who know the conflict very well, so I did not really give it a bit of an introduction. But I think it is absolutely worth remembering that in 2011, early in 2011, when people started taking to the streets in Syria, they protested for dignity, for an end of corruption. And I think the call for the toppling of the regime came a bit later even. So in the beginning, it was really very benign demands, but the response of the Syrian government from the very beginning was a response that was not political. It was a military, a security-oriented response. And I think over the time we saw 
more and more armed groups are also joining the opposition or establishing themselves outside the opposition, such as ISIS. So the number of armed actors meant also that human rights violations would become more standard in Syria, unfortunately. But I find it striking that you really, whatever subject you look into, you see that the vast majority of them are being committed by the regime, by the Syrian government that claims uh, to, to be the legitimate government, that claims a seat in the UN and that is treating its own population in this way, that is having a war against its own population. I mean, there are many complicated aspects about this war, many internal groups, many foreign groups, and many foreign state actors involved. So it is really a complex setting, but I think it is absolutely key to remember one constellation is very easy. There is a government that would be in charge of serving its own people and it is not doing that but it is actually going against it to a degree that half of the population by now is displaced more than half a million of people have died there are tens of thousands who have disappeared uh, and forced disappearances people who vanished in detention so coming to the aspect that you mentioned last people who are talking to you actually say we're the lucky ones we're the ones who survived i think Many people we are talking to see it exactly that way and many also feel guilty because of having survived and they can't help those who are still in a situation where they cannot be communicated with or they are just stuck. So I'm very happy that we have a survivor of detention here. Please, Shahar Yunus, uh, come up. Um, Shahar Yunus is a detention survivor who is a human rights activist from the province of Idlib the last rebel-held province, so to say, that is currently bombarded on a daily uh, basis. Uh, Shahar studied political science before the revolution and he worked in advertising and he participated in the peaceful demonstrations at the beginning of the revolution. Then he joined ambulance services and held different functions in the health services that were provided. Please also keep in mind and be aware of this amazing fact that civilians took tasks that the government couldn't take any longer or wouldn't take any longer in areas in which the government was not there any longer. There was an amazing activism to set up alternative health care, to set up underground schools. It was really the most striking I've ever seen in any country. And this spirit of organizing themselves, of doing things that serve the population, particularly exposed people, I think. So please, uh, Shahar Yunus, talk to us about your experience and what brings you here tonight. وكانوا يعني جدا مقاربين للحقيقة يعني فعلا جهد جبار أنا اسمي شاهر يونس أنا شخص بسيط من ريف مدينة إدلب ببداية المظاهرات بعام 2011 وبعد مشاركتنا مع غالبية الشعب السوري بالطالب بالحرية والإصلاح بالتظاهرات لاحظت أنا وبعض الناس أنه في مع تنامي استهداف النظام للمتظاهرين بالقمع وحتى بالسلاح لاحظنا 
ضرورة تقديم رعاية طبية للمتظاهرين من جهة وللمدنيين لأن بحالات الفوضى بتقل هاي الخدمات والمدنيين دائما من حقهم يتمتعوا بالرعاية الطبية Hello, good evening. Uh, first of all, thank you for being here, for having come to attend this evening with us. And I'd like to extend a very huge thanks to Physicians for Human Rights for having undertaken this enormous effort to publish this very important report. So once again, good evening. My name is Shaha Yunus, and I am from the rural countryside around Idlib, in the Idlib governorate. In the beginning of 2011, uh, when we after we had first participated in the protests to for justice, for, sorry, for freedom, liberties and reforms. After a while, when we found that the regime's main reaction to that was that they would increase the violence and passion of these protests, we felt the absolute necessity to organize some kind of medical provision of health care for them. First of all, we did so, of course, for the protesters themselves, and then also we wanted to encompass on the other side more general generally speaking, civilians, which had their basic right to health care also denied by the fact that this was no longer available in these circumstances, and we wanted to provide that. خضعنا لدورات تدريبية بالإسعافات الأولية على إيد أطباء. للأسف الأطباء اللي عملونا الدورات كلهم تم تصفيتهم بالاسم وأنشأنا نقاط طبية ومن ثم تطورت هاي النقاط الطبية لصارت مشافي بتقدم الرعاية للناس المدنيين بخارج بمناطق الخارجية عن سيطرة الحكومة كانت ظروف العمل كتير صعبة لدرجة أنه المدنيين المصابين كانوا يخافوا يترددوا على هاي المشافي خوفا من استهدافهم داخله لان كانت المشافي مشهوره باستهدافها فحتى بذكر تماما انه الناس الساكنين ببيوتهم حوالي المشفى وصاروا يعرفوا انه هاي المنطقه صار فيها مشفى صاروا يتركوا بيوتهم ويبتعدوا بالسكن عن هاي المشافي so then we underwent uh, training uh, programs and courses in basically for providing first aid services, uh, which were held by uh, physicians who later on then were targeted particularly for having given these courses and were basically eliminated and uh, killed. Um, <clears throat> And then we set, started set up so-called medical points, which later on developed to be turned into real hospitals, where we would provide medical care to civilian population uh, outside the government-controlled areas who were living in these areas. And I have to say that the working conditions in these hospitals were extremely harsh, um, even up to the point that injured civilians would be scared away from going to these hospitals because they would know and it had become known that these hospitals were targeted specifically even up to the point that people living in the surrounding areas of these hospitals uh, when they learned that such a hospital had been set up there they would try to move out of the immediate surroundings of the hospital because they would know that this would be targeted انضمامي لهي المشف... لهي المشفى ومشافي غيرها اتنقلت بعده مشافي وعده مناصب اداريه او حسب يعني معرفتي بالامور الاسعافيه 
بالاضافه الن اطلقت مبادرتين مبادره هي اسمها بسمه الطفل لتوزيع البسه مدفئه للاطفال زائد مبادره بتعتني ب وبتهتم بتامين ولادات امنه للنساء الحوامل بمناطق الحروب ببداية 2013 تم اعتقالي من قبل القوات الأمن السوري استمر هذا الاعتقال لمدة أربع سنوات وخمسة أشهر خرجت في عام 2017 So when I started to get involved in this work, I uh, worked in a number of different hospitals, uh, taking on a number of different, mainly administrative functions, but also um, on the basis of the uh, training and I had received in providing emergency medical services, also uh, certain functions in providing this emergency medical relief. And I also set up two initiatives, one um, aiming at distributing warm winter clothes to children, and the other aimed at providing safe spaces and safe places to give birth to mothers in war-afflicted areas. And then in the beginning of 2013, I was arrested by Syrian government security forces and was kept in detention for four months, four years and five months until I was released in 2017. <laughs> بين حلب ودمشق بعد نقلي إليها التحقيق أو الانتقال لفرع أمني جديد فهو مرحلة تحقيق جديدة لكن بأصناف تعذيب مختلفة يعني أنا ما قد سمعت يعني حتى بالروايات عن هيك أساليب تعذيب صعق بالكهرباء الانتهاكات الجسدية والجنسية والنفسية والضغط النفسي تعليق لمدة أيام يعني عورات وكانت التهم هو تقديم الدعم الطبي للإرهابيين بس باختصار الارهابيين بمفهومهم هو كل شيء بيعارض الحكومه السوريه او حكومه نظام الاسد So uh, when I was in detention, I was uh, transferred to exactly five different sections of the security services or the uh, intelligence services in different uh, locations, um, namely in Aleppo and then after my transfer also in Damascus. And each time you're transferred to a new security section, it means you undergo a new phase of investigation and you're exposed to all possible imaginable kinds of torture, uh, even everything you might have heard in, in stories which was also practiced in on me on about these kinds of torture such as electroshocks to the, to the legs uh, physical also sexual psychological kinds of violations and exerting psychological pressure being hanged up uh, for days on end um, and this all on based on charges that I had been so-called provided medical provided medical assistance to so-called terrorists and knowing very well that when the Syrian government talks about terrorists what they mean is that each and everyone which tries to oppose them is for them a terrorist uh, فلسطين تحديدا كنت معتقل بقسم 
كل المعتقلين اللي كانوا معي هنن كوادر طبيه اطباء صيادله مسعفين متطوعين فكل اللي كانوا موجودين معي بهذا القسم كوادر طبيه فرع فلسطين هو زائع الصيت بسوريا يسمى فرع الموت مثال بسيط لعدد الناس اللي بتنفقد بهذا القسم او بهذا بهذا القسم من هذا الفرع يوم طلعت انا من هذا الفرع طلعنا شخصين و11 جثه Um, and it was particularly held in, also in the so-called Palestine branch of the intelligence services in Damascus. And uh, there was held in a specific section which was apparently only assigned for the detention of those having worked in the medical field, meaning that there were doctors, um, paramedics, pharmacists, and those who had volunteered in providing medical uh, assistance. And it, the Palestine branch is actually a, a very well ill-famed in Syria, so to speak. It's it's called um, the branch of the death. And just to give you a basic idea what that means of how many people are lost there and just never returned from there, the day I was moved out of that uh, branch, there were two of us who were moved out of their life plus 11 dead bodies. تقريباً كل الاتهامات كانت متشابهة. بالعموم هي تقديم الدعم الطبي للإرهابيين تحت غطاء قانون الارهاب هو يعتبر تمويل لاعمال ارهابيه. تعرضت لمحكمه صوريه هي محكمه الارهاب. الجلسه كانت عباره عن 30 ثانيه ما بحق له المتهم يحكي نهائيا حتى محامي تبعه ما بحق له ولا بحق له يوكل محامي. انحكمت لعشر سنوات بسبب بتهمه دعم الارهابيين وتوزيع 36 علبة حليب أطفال لمن دون الستة أشهر على أبناء الإرهابيين. And the charges I was being uh, purposely held for were actually, all of those who had, were detained there were held on charges that they had basically provided um, medical uh, assistance to so-called terrorists. Um, and that was considered under the provisions of the anti-terrorist law uh, that basically you had participating in funding these terrorists. Um, we had a co- um, court session that was held in front of the so-called anti-terror court and it, the, the tribunal actually only lasted for a mere 30 seconds during which uh, me as the indicted was not even allowed to speak nor was my lawyer allowed to speak and nor was I even allowed to commission a lawyer of my own and then I was sentenced to 10 years in prison uh, for as I mentioned the charges of having uh, assisted and uh, provided medical assistance to so-called terrorists but also for the fact that I had distributed 36 containers of milk to children under the age of six so-called children of terrorists بعد سنوات من الاعتقال خرجت علي حكم محكمه بمصادره اموالي واملاكي تجريدي من الجنسيه العربيه السوريه وحرماني من الحقوق المدنيه وانطلبت بدعوه ثانيه وانحكمت فيها حكم غيابي بعد هروبي لمناطق المحرره تم اعتقالي كمان من قبل فصائل متشددة وهذا خلاني هلا خلاني أهرب لبرا هلا موضوع المعتقلين هو جرح نازف بالقضية السورية 
عداد الموت شغال دائما بغياب أي ضغط دولي أو حتى أي اهتمام من الجهات المؤثرة من الأمم المتحدة أنا بحس هذا ملف المعتقلين هو حتى خارج المفاوضات وخارج التفاوض وهو ملف إنساني بحت نحن نطمح كمعتقلين أو كناجين رقم واحد على تسليط الضوء على من بقي بالسجون السورية بشكل خاص الكوادر الطبية المعتقلين وبشكل عام ملف المعتقلين بشكل كامل وتسليط الضوء على المساءلة القضائية والقانونية وين راحت هاي الناس هو بالأساس في قلة بالكوادر الطبية بسوريا بوقت الحروب منظمات عم تبذل جهد خارق مثل سامز والأوسوم وهي عم يبذلوا جهد خارق لكن بتضل الإمكانيات محدودة شكرا كثير لكم Um, then after I had spent years and years in prison, I was uh, I was finally able to get out, um, and I had been passed down with a sentence also that uh, they were entitled to confiscate on my property and my belongings, that I would be stripped for my Syrian nationality, and of, uh, deprived of all my civilian rights. Uh, then there was a second um, indictment brought forward to me, uh, where a sentence was passed down on me in absentia. So uh, and based on that. I escaped to the so-called liberated areas at the time, where then again I was taken uh, prisoner by one of the extremist um, Islamistic factions, and which which was the fact that eventually made me flee from the country entirely. Uh, now the uh, issue of detention in Syria is still an open bleeding wound in all this um, conflict there, and because the, the the death toll is rising minute after minute, and it's ongoing, um, and. And uh, this in entire neglect and um, um, ignorance by the, or it is completely not taken into consideration really by uh, those on the international scene who might have an impact on this, uh, also including the United Nations, and this whole issue of detention and holding people uh, arbitrarily is not even part of the negotiation, it's completely kept outside the whole negotiation process, even though it is, is an entirely human, human uh, uh, humanitarian issue and what we strive for as detainees or former detainees survivors of this is that on the one hand uh, we try to highlight um, the fate of those still remaining in detention up to this very day uh, particularly of course in our case those from the medical uh, uh, people working in the medical field and on the other hand of course in more in general the entire issue of this still in detention as a whole um, <clears throat> And that uh, those, and that, that on the other hand, that those responsible are being held accountable. That we also learn of what happened to them, what what became out of these people, where did they disappear? Um, knowing very well that in the times of war such as this, of course, there is only a very limited number of medical personnel actually still on the ground, capable of working. And given even given that all kinds of organizations such as SAMS and also are uh, trying to undertake as best as they can their efforts to assist, but uh, that is still a very limited resource we have there. So thank you very much for your kind attention.
Thank you very much. You mentioned, Michelle, uh, the courage it takes to live up to your ethics standards and to your profession standards in these circumstances. But I really think that it also takes courage to share all that you've gone through publicly. So I'm particularly grateful that, uh, Shahar, you did this. Thank you very much. From here, I would like to take another field perspective, and that is the one of Mazin Shewara, uh, Kewara. I'm sorry. Um, he studied medicine at the University of Damascus and worked at Tishreen Hospital in Damascus. And then, unfortunately, already in 2012, he and his family had to flee from Damascus to Turkey. And in Turkey, Dr. Kewara set up the Turkey. Uh, center, uh, the, the um, country office of the uh, Syrian American Medical Society, SAMS, an organization that has been very active in providing medical trainings and aid across the border from Turkey and in Turkey. So please, Mazen, uh, come on the panel. I think you wanted to talk, on the one hand, on the attacks uh, that have been described already, but also on deconflicting mechanisms. So please, the floor is yours. Hello. Uh, thank you so much uh, for, for our colleagues in PHR and Heritage School for hosting us uh, this evening and thank you so much for you, for all of you, for participating in this um, uh, event. Um, actually, it's a honor for me to be with you here and talk about the challenges we are facing in, uh, in Syria when we are providing healthcare uh, services. Um, I was... I had a great chance to flee out of Damascus in 2011 um, and flee to Turkey uh, without being uh, detained by uh, the security forces of the uh, Syrian government because um, a vascular surgeon and were uh, treating uh, the the patients, uh, actually mainly the uh, protesters, um, in the uh, starting of the uprising of uh, the Syrian people in 2011. Um, in Turkey, I continued uh, my uh, work in providing healthcare services uh, with my organization, SAMS, which is, uh, SAMS is a non-political NGO based in U.S., uh, established by Syrian-American physicians um, uh, since 20 years. Uh, we participated in providing the healthcare services in the areas we have access to uh, in, in Syria. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't provide uh, services in the uh, government-controlled areas, so we uh, have been providing uh, the services in the areas out of the government control. Um, so, uh, as you all know, um, the security situation inside Syria is the 
most important obstacle and hurdles we see in uh, provide in the service provision in in uh, in the Syria, uh, especially uh, targeting the healthcare. Uh, when we were in the uh, government control areas, we were uh, targets for the security forces. Uh, out of the government uh, areas, we are we have been targeted by the airstrikes, by the uh, the, the uh, government forces and uh, its allies. Uh, our story uh, to be a target in the hospital is a very long story from from the beginning. Uh, unfortunately, and continue as it is till now, without any kind of protection or uh, till now any kind of accountability uh, for those uh, perpetrators. But we have a huge hope to have them accountable uh, for uh, their crimes uh, in the in the future. Because of that. We uh, appreciated a lot such kind of reports and uh, research uh, focus on the uh, targeting the healthcare. I may uh, just take uh, give you a very few numbers uh, from the very recent uh, military campaign. Uh, f- which uh, was started in in uh, April 27th, 2019. Just for SAMS facilities, we uh, had 24 attacks against 13 facilities supported by us. Uh, we lost four of our staff. They martyred in their in, in job in their facilities, providing uh, uh, the medical health care for the people in, in, in those very crowded area. You, you may know that in Idlib pocket, we have three millions of civilians live, live there, very few number of physicians and few number of hospitals. From those 13 facility we lost the access in the last campaign to three of those facilities located in, in, in southern part of Idlib. And we lost the three of those facilities because they were totally destroyed after the attacks and run out of service. Those facilities, just the two we lost the access to, were providing services for 13,000 beneficiary a month. And for those, we uh, we, we lost them and uh, got destroyed. We were providing more than 20,000 service a month. So in very difficult situation, we keep losting uh, the few resources we have uh, to, to, to provide services to, to those people. In general, there was 66 attack just from April till now. 66 attack against uh, 46 facility in Northwest Syria. 
those facilities were providing services for more than 1.2 million people uh, uh, living there. And as you see nowadays, we see new escalation against this area. And with using the same tactic of targeting the healthcare, uh, targeting ambulance systems, ambulances, and, and healthcare workers. UN, the humanitarian community, come up with some kind of uh, attempts to, to, let me say, to help, to make things difficult against those they are uh, attacking the hospitals and come up with something called deconfliction mechanism, OCHA deconfliction mechanism. We in SAMS were part of this mechanism th from the beginning. The, we are providing the coordinates of our facilities with full consent of those people working inside those facilities. Although they know that the, uh, the perpetrators will attacking them will do that and continue doing that because there is no accountability, but to make things more difficult for, 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 for those perpetrators, they, they, they give us the, their consent to, to provide uh, the, the coordinates of those facilities to UN, to provide that to Russian Federation, uh, to, to the government side, to the coalition side, to Turkey forces also. You sh just, if you could imagine that all of our facilities were targeted in the last campaign were deconflicted. That means all those locations were very clear that they are healthcare facilities, PHC centers, hospitals. Although, despite all of that, 13 of them were targeted. Three of them were destroyed totally. We lost the access to two of, of, of them. So unfortunately, and after all of that work uh, and all of those uh, sacrifices, uh, we, as the international community, and the humanitarian community couldn't provide that protection to those people who deserve that protection because they are protecting others. Uh, the Security Council uh, uh, decided and there was a, a Security Council resolution to, uh, to, to, to have a new initiative and establish a new investigation body beside the others, which uh, called the uh, um, Board of Inquiry. To, and, and its mandate was just to look at those attacks against the healthcare uh, services. We, uh, in the health uh, uh, care uh, organizations and as, as doctors working there, 
we uh, were cooperating and we have been cooperating with this uh, board of inquiry. And we hope that we can get some kind of accountability. Uh, uh, the, the report of, of this board will, will be uh, ready at the end of December of this month and will be provided to the Secretary General of, uh, of uh, the United Nations. Uh, we hope, I think, everything right now in, in, in the hands of the Secretary General and the international community to, uh, to, 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 to give more hope for the physicians, the healthcare workers. It's not just f f hospitals. They are schools. There are uh, 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 water stations. Continue be targeting uh, uh, nowadays in, in northwest Syria. So uh, I think our work uh, of, of, of colleagues uh, in, in, in looking for the accountability uh, in, in Syria is very crucial and essential uh, and hope that one day we can all together see those people against the, 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 uh, the, 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 the law, the international law, and uh, 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 held accountable uh, be, because things they did already. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mazen. That is very interesting to have some data really on the latest attacks. And it shows really the scale of attacks and also this phenomenon that you share coordinates. So facilities should be protected, but exactly the contrary is happening. It is striking. So the whole Syria conflict and this issue has been very well documented. We know what is happening where by whom and how. But what is happening with this information? I would like to invite Bashak Chale for shedding some light on possible avenues for accountability. You already saw her welcoming us, but she's a professor of international law here at the Heritage School and director of the Center for Fundamental Rights. She's an expert in international law and institutions on international human rights laws and policy and holds a long list of assignments that really make her an expert in this. So please, tell us, how is human rights litigation possible in the context of Syria? Thank you. Um, thank you, Benta, and thank you for... Um, I'd like to thank all the panelists to be here today. I really appreciate it uh, very much. Uh, Maybe a couple of things. We, you know, there's a big demand for accountability for Syria, but accountability for whom and accountability for what um, are, are two issues. In international law, we talk about two types of accountability. One is accountability of states as imaginary actors, i.e., the accountability of Syria or accountability of the Syrian institutions. Um, under international human rights law, because the uh, the testimony that we heard today is torture. States are responsible for torturing anyone within their jurisdiction. Uh, so there's the question of accountability for states in the case of state of Syria or other actors. The second one is the accountability of individuals. So not the state of Syria, but the man uh, who have carried out the torture, which is the criminal 
accountability. Uh, and obviously, in the case of Syria, the demand is for both. And uh, the report uh, that Physicians of Human Rights um, has done highlights both of those aspects. Because the, the, the crime of torture is both an individual crime and also a state crime, if you want to use um, that sort of term. After a certain time in Syria, of course, the, the conflict has, uh, you know, the protests, the peaceful protests has changed its color as well. So at some point, people did say that, you know, sometime in 2012, we have an international armed conflict. So uh, so things, the, the nature of things change. And of course, there is a lot of call for accountability for violations of laws of war. Uh, and this is, where I think, one of the targeting of hospitals also come into this, that there's another sort of a, uh, an area where we say that individuals are accountable, but the state of Syria or other states may also be accountable. So the civil and the in criminal individual accountability are two, two things. Um, I'm highlighting this because uh, it's important about what, you know, what is possible along these lines. Uh, can we hold the state of Syria accountable? Uh, currently, the answer seems to be not really. Uh, you know, in the, in the current circumstances, we can't hold Syria accountable in Syria, uh, so not within the domestic structures of Syria. Syria's, uh, you know, structures are not possible. For this to happen, there has to be a massive change, almost a ruptured transition for an accountability for Syria to be discussed in Syria. And that's not likely uh, at the moment. Um, could Syria as a state be held accountable outside of Syria? Um, they, Syria can't be held accountable in other countries' courts. States have immunity. Um, heads of states have immunity. Uh, so, you know, you can't have a case against Syria, even though the perpetrator as the state uh, is we're focusing on it. Could there be a case before the International Court of Justice, some sort of international case against Syria? Uh, that's also uh, not really possible because Syria wouldn't accept that. These institutions are voluntary institutions. Uh, so the Syria accountability about Syrian responsibility is, is very, very limited in these contexts for human rights violations or for violations of international humanitarian law. Now, a lot of conversation has really turned to accountability of individuals because this is a little bit maybe more likely. Could individuals be held accountable in Syria the answer is no, uh, not at the moment, unless there is a process, a transition, which actually focuses on these crimes, uh, the issues that were highlighted about this mass detentions and torture and everything else, right? So, and this is not where we are. Accountability at the International Court, uh, International Criminal Court, which is about individual criminal accountability. Um, well, that idea got a double veto uh, at the Security Council, uh, the referral of Syria was vetoed both by the Russian Federation and by China. And a double veto is, is a pretty big veto. You know, it's not one veto of a permanent member, but two. Uh, so I think that's a bit of a dead, uh, dead end. So where do you go from there uh, is exactly that's what's happening in Europe at the moment because the um, domestic courts where actually a lot of Syrian refugees have been able to, not everyone, but some people have been able to go and travel. These are the places where we see very tiny, tiny glimpses of accountability at the moment in Germany, in Sweden, um, in Norway, in France. And it is likely that it would it would pop up in, in, in some other places as well. But of course, you have to take this uh, with a pinch of salt in a way, because 
you know, if, if the perpetrator is not in Germany, uh, you know, there's one case like this in Germany. There's an arrest warrant against the Air Force Intelligence, the head of the Air Force Intelligence. What, what signal it sends is that he won't be able to come, right? He won't be able to travel to Germany because there's an arrest warrant. But it won't be possible for the German police to go into Syria and arrest him and bring him back. So, uh, but if the perpetrators are in Europe, uh, you know, if it, it happens. Sometimes you meet your perpetrator in a country where you seek asylum. That's possible. So there is some sort of a chance uh, for that. Uh, because the, the domestic regime can't do anything for accountability, the international systems are blocked. That's why we see this sort of horizontal movements, which are nevertheless, I think, incredibly important, uh, because this is not a situation where we can say, oh, that's not good enough, we won't, we won't take that, because it's exactly what you heard today. It is incredibly important to have even a small glimpse of accountability, even though these cases, uh, the domestic cases in Europe, are not necessarily uh, successful. Maybe just a final uh, remark about something quite unique about Syria. Syria is, is a very important case for international uh, law and policy uh, because usually you have uh, trials and then you have investigations, right? So you somebody starts a case and somebody starts investigating it. In the case of Syria... Uh, Bante, you highlighted this. This is a complete reversal. We have a lot of investigations and no trials. So the investigations are prior to actually having the court cases. This is because the accountability call is so massive and the gap that we have created in Syria for the, for the past seven, eight years is so huge. Uh, and the UN is so blocked that, for example, the UN uh, General Assembly has created the Geneva mechanism, the independent um, Impartial, there's another I. International independent impartial, thank you. So in the international independent impartial mechanism, the Geneva mechanism, which is tasked with collecting evidence in relation to uh, war crimes in Syria. But of course, it's just uh, an institution that collects evidence with the hope, and I think you were underlining, with the hope that someone is going to use this evidence. But of course, the venues for using this evidence at the moment are, are incredibly limited. Uh, but I think the call uh, for this evidence to be used will not go away uh, for, for decades. I don't think that this is going to go. Uh, we know this from our experiences of uh, other very serious human rights situations. Um, you know, if, if your loved ones are subject to enforced disappearance, you won't give up on the accountability trial. This goes on generations and generations. And I think that's what we need to, to understand and we need to keep the focus. Uh, this is not a short game. This is a very long game. Uh, but we have to keep at it, I think. Thank you very much. Even though that was not a very uplifting perspective to see how many roads are closed, I think the aspect that you highlighted, the worth of documentation itself, collecting evidence and being systematic about it is very special and very important. 
And also when we see all the efforts to take away Syrian's narrative, all the attacks of uh, alternative media um, uh, where fake news are being spread to take the last thing that many Syrians have to tell their story and to give uh, like to be witnesses and tell of what they have been witnessing i think it is very important also for that to collect evidence and to speak about it with this remark i would very much like to invite you please uh, feel free to address any questions to the panel please be succinct be very brief in your questions and please keep in mind there will be a further option for exchange after we go through a few rounds of questions i would like to collect a few questions so please come forward and if you don't have questions i will ask questions so please now take your opportunity and let us know what you'd like to know please Hello, my name is uh, Humam. I'm Chagite now, former field doctor in Syria. I'm not shocked of what is happening in, in Syria because we, it's, it's criminalizing in, in every kind of, in every aspect. But for me now, I am really, I, I don't understand why all the people who are saying it's a criminal, it's nothing. And we, we know how many closed doors we have and how many plugs we have and vetoes and so on. But actually, it's weird that all for uh, uh, for the Syrian regime till now one of the most important ways of financing the regime is still the consulates that's providing passports that all of member states are requiring from Syrians to have a normal Syrian pays like $800 for two years passport it's it's a, it's really vital for the regime UN was using using the would really a, really would you have a Question to the okay. panel. Okay, well, up to the panel. Uh, knowing that always those closed ways, I think that we are not uh, we are not uh, trying with all other uh, prospective ways that we can uh, try to have a pressure on the Syrian regime. Uh, is there any aspect that we are going to use such financing things to uh, to pressure the Syrian regime or not? Thank you. There is a question there in the back. Thank you. Uh, I just want to, to take the opportunity to, to say that uh, Germany have made a present in the history of justice by allowing uh, victims and survivors to uh, case a file in their courts and to bring uh, and to go beyond the slogan of we want justice, we want accountability. And for Germany to make the present uh, court and arrest warrant for Syrians. And as, as a Syrian, uh, I would say it was one of the greatest moments in our history to, to hear that coming from, from Germany. My question is, as, as a doctor and as a survivor of detention, uh, how do you see this, uh, this, this, like, this event of, of bringing accountability to, 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 to victims? And do you encourage other state uh, <clears throat> members in Europe to do as Germany have done? Is there 
Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I would like to thank you, uh, to thank all of you for uh, coming here today. I would like to ask uh, you if you uh, may elaborate more about the possibilities to have the individuals hold accountable in Europe or in Germany more specifically since the international law is blocked in Syria. Thank you. Okay, with that, <clears throat> I'd like to take it to the panel. We have a few questions One was about, are there ways to address how the regime is being financed? Can we do anything about that? One was about how to bring justice, uh, to elaborate further on that, and how to encourage other states in Europe possibly to follow suit. And one was directed uh, very clearly to how can individuals be held accountable. If I may add, can you maybe also elaborate more on the recommendations because this report also entails recommendations. I think it would be very helpful if you could share these as well. And maybe we could start right with that and then come to the international law-related and justice system-related questions. Well, certainly we can, we can try to venture an answer here, Hamam, uh, but... I'm not sure I'm going to give you a satisfying answer because obviously the options are quite narrow. Uh, the, the Syrian government has proven to be extremely resilient, right? Despite uh, a pretty significant sanctions regime that's now in place that affects its financial structures, uh, despite having extremely limited resources internally and uh, few avenues to gather resources from the outside, It has held on very tight and uh, basically uh, faced external pressure by cracking down further and further on its own population and maintaining its military campaign uh, and maintaining its primary objective of regaining its uh, access or control over the entirety of the territory and the population. Uh, what can we do beyond what we're doing now? shedding light on these issues, uh, raising awareness about these issues, continuing to use sometimes niche issues, narrow issues, like the detention of healthcare workers, the targeting of medical facilities, to point to ongoing crimes, uh, war crimes, and in our assessment, crimes against humanity. Uh, our options are very limited. Uh, we do, uh, I'm going to take the opportunity to say that one of our primary recommendations from the report, so of course the call for accountability for using every avenue available regardless of how narrow they are to achieve some measure of accountability for crimes committed is essential, but it's also essential to uh, advocate for uh, a, uh, practical uh, solutions to this issue. So Detention in our assessment and the assessment of many in this room, specifically groups that work on advocacy, is a pivotal issue uh, for thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of individuals. And it's an issue uh, without, uh, without resolving this issue or attempting to resolve this issue, there is very little room for any sort of political advancement. So it's important for us to call for pressure by the international community as well as allies to the Syrian state to be able to, one, attain some disclosure of information on the number of detainees, the locations of detainees and their fates, 
uh, also we advocate, we call for ensuring that humanitarian agencies have access to this extremely opaque system. So we have very little information on the scope of this issue beyond the information that we receive from affected families and individuals, primarily because uh, it is not in any way a transparent system. Uh, so it's essential for us to maintain these calls for pressure, for the resolution of fate and disclosure of information, as well as access to these, issue, uh, these, these locations, official and unofficial, of detention as well as the release of, uh, unconditional release, I would say, of all arbitrarily and illegally detained individuals, doctors, uh, health workers, and many others who've been affected by this issue. Uh, I'm going to cede the mic here to someone else who can maybe venture an answer. Very, very briefly, if, if I can add, from my perspective as Syrian, uh, I'm not representing here my, the, the op opinion of my organization. Um, I think the international community, the, the international system failed the Syrian people. Uh, failed in the, in the protection of, of those people and will fail other people in the future because of the system itself that give superpower for very clear states with very specific political interest to support one state and left this support on others or from others. So uh, I don't think that under the current international system, we will see real protection for the people on this, this earth. I hope that one day we will see some kind of accountability under the same system. We may see some kind of accountability because of your work, because of our work and our goodwill. I don't want to... to talk a lot about that and leave that for, for my colleagues. <coughs> Thank you, but maybe we can link your question about Germany or, or the domestic courts to also this constraints about geopolitics. So when, when Germany issues an arrest warrant, it issues it to the Syrian government to say, you know, I think that this person who is, you know, who is your citizen, who lives in your country, may have committed the crime of torture, or we think they may have committed war crimes or crimes against humanity, the arrest warrant says we'd like to, to, to try this person. So under what circumstances would Syria would release uh, an intelligence uh, official or some sort of acting person, uh, not under these geopolitical circumstances, that won't be possible because you need some cooperation from Syria if uh, the perpetrators are not in Europe. So, i.e., if the perpetrators haven't traveled or given up being a perpetrator and actually have come to Europe and people have received information and so on. So that, that is the big, I think, difficulty with accountability. Um, so you can say, well, does it matter what they're accountable for? Maybe we can, we can think about that. Um, you know, it is important, I think, that if someone is accountable for war crimes 
or for crimes against humanity, which are, you know, uh, systematic attacks on a civilian population in within the context of a greater sort of a policy, uh, because it matters for the victims as a whole about what is it that you're holding people accountable. So, and I think these issues will come, come over and over in, in many courts in Europe. But once you can't get the perpetrators here, it is a difficult one, but of course we can say this gives a relief. I think a colleague at the back said, said this for the victims because it gives people a voice and also it helps us to understand it's almost like a people's trial. So there, the perpetrator is not there, but actually you know, there is a sense of, 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 a, of justice for those who, who have experienced that. It has been successful, I think, in a couple of occasions when you have, for example, um, ex uh, or, or current ISIS fighters who are actually double dual citizens. So some people have traveled to Syria to fight because, as you know, a lot of people have committed crimes. We highlighted the, the government because this is significant in the case of detention. Um, so in some cases, when people have traveled to Syria and they came back, to uh, different European countries. Of course, they're physically there. You know, it's their citizen. And of, of course, this, this is a different type of an issue when you get those people. Uh, but of course, if they're not there, uh, the courts here are using universal jurisdiction. They're um, activated by victims who are here. And of course, they're using all this evidence uh, that is collected uh, by NGOs, uh, by, by various, a lot of civil society groups, and also by the UN mechanism, uh, who's collecting evidence and sort of waiting for people to, um, to tap into it. I'm just trying to make sure that Dr. Rayan بصراحة أنا واحد من شعب من أفراد الشعب السوري اللي مصاب بخيبة أمل كبيرة وما بيعول على يعني بصراحة على السياسيين بالغرب السياسيين مو من اهتمامهم ولا من أولوياتهم هو الوضع الإنساني بسوريا حاليا كانت الوتيرة أحسن كان الوضع والتعاطف العملي كان أحسن مع قضية الشعب السوري للأسف هلا منشوف موضوع إعادة تلميع للنظام مثل كأني واحد عم يعمل عملية تجميل لمومياء فيعني ما, ما منا فايدة يعني مننطالب دائما يعني السماح للناجين ومساعدتهم بدولهم على الأقل ب رفع قضايا ضد النظام تحريك قضايا بالمحاكم الدولية والسماح لمنظمات المجتمع المدني اللي عم تشتغل يعني عم تشتغل بحق يعني مو لأن موجود بHR والشبكة السورية لحقوق الإنسان موجودين معنا لا فعلا يعني إذا بتشوفوا هن عم يبذلوا جهد يعني بعاد المجهود دول بالتأثير ف يعني بصراحة برجع بقول من البداية إنه بمع هذا النظام ما في ما في أمل لا يتحسن شيء شكراً لكم. Well, I'd like to add just something to what uh, Dr. Mazen and my and Ryan uh, said that 
I am actually one of the uh, members of the Syrian people and I am just as disappointed as probably anyone else is and I don't place any hopes into Western uh, politicians um, that they basically show any interest or place any priority in the current situation in uh, the Syrian issue in, from the point of view that we would like to see it. I mean, there used to be some more movement and some more momentum at some uh, certain point in time in the past as regarding the Syrian situation and there used to be uh, uh, more sympathy with us and, and the situation used to be a lot better but now uh, in the way the regime has returned in force and it is like you have undertaken a, a beautifying uh, surgery, it has undergone aesthetic surgery for uh, for a mummy and it has re been re resuscitated so to speak um, but the only thing we might ask for is uh, victims and, uh, and survivors of this kind of treatment that we be allowed and we be assisted in bringing forward cases in the places we are now here in Europe in those different states to litigate or to prosecute in national or international courts um, for these cases and uh, <clears throat> and I'm say, giving the huge amount of effort undertaken already by civil society organizations and not only saying this because PHR or the Syrian Network for Human Rights are present with us here today but I'm, I really sincerely mean it. Um, it it's an enormous effort and it's extremely important that these uh, very worthwhile efforts are undertaken as a kind of make up for the uh, missing of uh, inter efforts undertaken on the international community level and that brings me back to my starting point again that basically I don't think that there's any hope that we can achieve anything in this regard with the current Syrian regime in place. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hear a strange sound. I'm not sure whether that means that we are being kicked out because I failed. I didn't manage to keep the time as well as I wanted to. But the reason is that we are dealing with big subjects and important subjects. And I think that you had a fascinating amount of insights and information to offer. Therefore, I allow myself to cut you short here. I know that I promised you that you'd have a short intervention. But please remember, we're now going outside. We'll have some food. And actually, Hattie's school, not only hosting us generously here, also arranged for something special. A catering company is uh, there that is called Refu8. And it is a kind of social, it has a social component as well, employing refugees. So please join us there, bring your questions and mingle outside. Thank you very much, everybody here on the panel. It was a very interesting discussion. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herdy-school.org.